Good morning, everybody, and welcome to week five of our readings for the Forensic Psychology course. Um, I probably get overexcited about most of our research papers, but I'm going to go ahead and give the broad statement that this one's my favourite, which I believe I also said in week three, but this one is definitely the favourite. Um, I, I think from, from this paper, it... It, it's not just that it's a theoretical innovation and it's not just the impact of the paper and what it says, but it, it, it's a methodological innovation. And I think to have the data that this paper has with regards to the area that it's studying in the time in which it is being studied, in my honest opinion, um, I, I think it, it is really exciting. Now, I don't, you may have noticed this by now, uh, and we should probably address this head on. At this point, we've seen the name Lawrence Allison a couple times. Uh, some of you may think of me kind of at the moment basically being kind of Lawrence Allison by proxy and just parroting his work back to you. Um, well, there are reasons for that. But I mean, well, let, let, let's, let's, be, let's be frank. Firstly, Lawrence Allison is my PhD supervisor, mentor, and probably my closest collaborator. So I'm biased. But also... Lawrence Allison, about a month ago, was awarded an MBE, which, for those of you who don't know, is a, is a member of the British Empire. It's one of our top awards uh, in the country for the work that he did uh, in response to the COVID pandemic. So I don't just attach myself to him out of a kind of a legacy piece. He, he is, in my opinion, the most impactful forensic psychologist. And you, you should, I hope, see that from the fact that his name popped up throughout the profiling work, throughout the... Uh, Rachel Nickel case and now as we go into the interrogation work you know you're seeing his name there again so it's kind of a, a whenever forensic psychology is is in the thick of it you'll you'll see Lawrence's name so that's kind of why he's there and also in my opinion his work is just better than all the other stuff that we see um, so let's let's dig into this paper right why tough tactics fail and rapport gets resolved observing rapport-based interview techniques brackets orbit to generate useful information from terrorists and if anyone is really interested by this paper i can recommend to you a new book orbit the science of rapport-based interviewing for law enforcement security and military by lawrence allison emily allison neil d shortland that's me and francis sermon boer so really a shameless shameless plug and to be honest i wouldn't buy it unless you're going to take a course on interrogation but there we go new book out now Discount codes are available. It makes for fantastic Christmas gifts. Um, so let's, uh, right, let's start with a story. All right, okay, so here we are, and we're, we're looking at this idea of interrogating terrorists. And, and from last week's lecture, you know, you should kind of know where we're at with the Shane O'Mara reading, right? This idea that it's kind of the Wild West and kind of, you know, everyone's kind of putting things together in the background, right? Mitchell and Jensen are coming up with their wild idea and there are all these claims about effectiveness and and one of the problems in something like interrogation and this is an issue that we see in um that we saw in the profiling world as well is it's very hard to disprove the claim that it's effective because when it comes to something like interrogation it's very hard to actually prove anything you know to, to, to build a scientific study of it so because the, the, the couple ways you can do it is one, you can basically just listen to people and they can give you their kind of autobiographical perception. Uh, we, you know, we've seen some of the issues with that. The other is you can do the kind of the, the psychological model, 
Right, this idea of kind of, you know, doing a psychological experiment. I know many of you are criminologists in this course, many of you are psychologists, and many of you come from, you know, different different fields afar. But what you'll know if you're a psychologist is that there's a very classic way in which we do studies, and that is that we recruit undergraduate psychology students in exchange for mandatory course credits, and we ask them to come in and, and, and be parts of our studies, right? And in, in this area, Albert Vrye is kind of the, the pioneer of this work in which he, he brings a student in and he'll ask them to, to do something or read something. And, you know, maybe then he'll ask them to lie um, and he'll ask someone else to, to interview them and, and he'll measure. You know, he does a lot of this work on lie detection, which we, we have coming up in the near future. Um, and he'll, he'll use that to kind of measure different tactics. Now, it's good. Um, and it's, you know, it's a really good way of controlling uh, for an experiment. And it's a good way of, of developing data in the absence of of real world data but sometimes some of the problems with that is 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 we have to remember who the participants are and i always remember as a as a young undergraduate psychology student doing my due diligence and being part of studies and you know the the research study would say you know don't eat for 24 hours because we're studying you know hunger on cognition and I'd tick the box and say absolutely and then you know I'd wake up that morning and remember that I was doing a research study turn up they'd say you know did you have you have you eaten for the last 24 hours and I say oh no I haven't eaten at all the honest truth is I was probably wolfing down a burger and chips at three in the morning and I woke up after two hours sleep but you know they didn't need to know that because then I wouldn't have got my credits so undergraduate students are, are quite a unreliable sample at times I think we'll say and, and, and I don't think psychology solved that to be honest um but it it, it it gives you this kind of interesting ultimatum of well if I can't study it in the real world well how do I study it, it at all and, and that's why this paper and specifically the work that stemmed from it is so impactful because as I'll show you the data that they got actually allows the the scientific and, and the kind of the, the the experimental almost study of interrogation behaviors. So, if we're going to go into the introduction, oh, apparently it flips to two pages. Now that's exciting. Um, what Lawrence is basically saying is that if if you look historically, there is this issue that we are now interrogating a lot of very very senior. Um, Al-Qaeda IRA terrorist members and, and from the police standpoint he talks about the PACE uh, approach here basically you know there are these ways that we've constructed um, interviews and, and basically what he kind of says is that, that the idea of rapport isn't particularly well conceptualized sometimes it's viewed as almost a stage and, and I think in the in these slides I'll probably end up showing you you know there's this research of kind of you know police officers how do you define rapport well you know I define rapport as, you know, asking them what their favourite soccer team is. You know, so, so how would I build rapport with you? Well, I'd, I'd turn up and, you know, I'd say, hi, how's everyone doing? Oh, yeah, Tom Brown. Sorry, everyone, I had to take a quick break there. My phone decided to blow up and ruin my entire screen. Um, okay, so so what um, so what the, the police concepts say is basically this idea that rapport is almost a stage. It's a tick box, right? So you go in, you say hello, you build rapport, and then you move on with your interview. And what... Lawrence is basically saying is that that is not a very good interpretation of what rapport is. Rapport is not a stage, it is an underlying fabric of an interaction. And really, if appropriately done, rapport should allow you to actually be kind of, it, it allows you the opportunity to be almost, you know, ask harder questions and stuff. And, and so 
He talks to basically the idea that there is a philosophical difference in the ter- in the idea that rapport is a, a soft tactic. You know, do you want a cup of tea? Uh, oh, how's your mother? Um, versus rapport is a kind of an overarching concept that, that enshrines the entire interrogation. So as we move on to page 412413, and we will cover this more in class, what Lawrence is basically talking about, because this video I really want to focus on the methods, what Lawrence is really talking about here is basically how he decided to define rapport in the orbit model, so observing rapport-based interview techniques. Um, and he basically says that rapport stems from two perceptions. One is motivational interviewing and one is the interpersonal behavioural circle. In brief, and again, we will cover these in, in detail in class. In brief, motivational interviewing is basically the idea. It's a therapeutic idea from Miller and Rolnick um, that's been used in therapy kind of since the early 1970s. And it's the idea that you can't make somebody do something. And it, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, it's, it's this idea that, and then there's a really good quote that I'll, I'll track down and read to you. But, it, but basically, Miller and Rowanek said, basically, you, if you're dealing with a, with, a, with a drunkard, you can't make him stop drinking. And you can't control the environment and wear him down to the point where he accepts that he needs to stop drinking and he stops drinking. The only way he will stop drinking is if he decides that he should stop drinking. Now, you can help him. You can nudge him. You can gently kind of uh, kind of gently try and tip the scales but you're you don't have the control to make him do something and, and that's at the heart of this approach it's it's that you as the interrogator cannot make somebody talk all you can do is accept that they can decide to talk and you can try and tip the scales help them come to that realization but but the underlying autonomy of all of this lies in the person and the interpersonal behavioural circle is basically this idea that different people present with different types of personalities and that the personality dyad, i.e. you and the other person, is going to interact, is going to impact what the rapport in that interaction is like. So, so we, I have a very good example I'll give you. Um, you know, I'm, I'm moderately extrovert. I control conversations. I, I, can, I can happily talk and talk over people. Um, however, when I talk to my best friend, he might be the only person that's better at that than me. And I become very submissive. Uh, and, and he talks for 85% of our, of our phone calls. And what you're seeing there is that the, the, the rapport is dependent on how you react to the other person. And, and to be very, very broadly conceptual here, what Lawrence kind of says is if someone's being super dominating... In order to build rapport, you basically need to be kind of uh, mild-mannered and meek. And if someone's being mild-mannered and meek to build rapport, you need to be over... You need to exert control. Someone has to be exerting control. So that's what the interpersonal behavioural circle is. And again, as he he points out here, it's kind of a 1950s um, psychological theory. So what's going on here, and I think it's really interesting, is is while we're talking about interrogation in a a post-9-11 world theoretically, Lawrence is talking about the 50s and 60s and 70s and kind of old school psychological concepts that he's packaged into this kind of orbit model. So let's take what we've what we've got here very briefly, right? Lawrence has a model, okay? He says that you need to have good interpersonal behavioral um, skills, our interpersonal behavioral circle, and you basically need to evidence what he calls motivational interviewing techniques, which are these kind of very rapport therapeutic approaches right so that's his model and what he's saying is that if these behaviors are used 
then you are going to get more information from a detainee. Now, there are two papers that I will, I won't do a video for both. They're very, very similar, but the, the dependent variable is different. One is on yield, so the idea of information given. And one is on uh, counter-interrogation techniques, so them basically actively resisting you. And, and, and these, these, these papers are basically sisters of each other. The, the, in this paper, we're looking at how much they tell you. Um, and in the other paper, we're looking at how much they actively resist you. And Lawrence's hypothesis is that if you do this kind of orbit model approach, you will increase the amount of yield, i.e. the amount of information, and you will decrease, decrease the amount of, of counter-interrogation techniques. Now, while they are separate, in my opinion, that, that those two things kind of come together. But now let's look at the, the, the data. So you can see it in this hypothesis. I don't need to bore you with those. Now let's look at the data. The study included 418 audio and video recordings of police interviews with 29 terrorist suspects, brackets representing 288 hours of footage, who were subsequently convicted of terrorism-related offences. So already, from a data standpoint, we have the largest database ever collected and analysed of real interrogations by the police. So these are their internal videotapes that they are that they have um, that they have recorded as part of you know the legal process of interrogating somebody and they are with uh, with terrorist suspects now what obviously these are not you know air quotes now black site CIA interrogations and the kind of things that I would say the the enhanced interrogation techniques were used on uh, overseas but these are, you know, from, from a US-centric perspective here, you know, these are your your Jokar Sarnayevs, okay? These are your, um, these are, are your, you know, your Timothy McVeighs, if you want. You know, these are your Omar Mateens, your, your, your any terrorist that is, that, that you know, that convicts a, an act of terrorism. This would be the interrogations with them in the in the minutes days months after the terrorist attack nicholas cruz would be another example that i i'm not sure if he's in this sample but but i you know he would be a candidate for this so that's the level of the data um and as you can imagine if before that you had a nothing or b undergraduate students being interviewed by undergraduate students this already shows a a kind of a, a data leap in terms of the validity of what we're looking at here now to get into the procedure, uh, I think that's, again, that's another really interesting and important step because what Lawrence has, this basically has this, this framework, right? This analysis framework of tick boxing these behaviors um, and, and kind of, um, and, and quantitatively coding them. And I'm not gonna go through the entire thing, but if you are interested on table four, one, uh, sorry, page 417, table three, this is kind of the, um, the kind of the coding framework. And what you can see here is that basically for the uh, motivational interviewing behaviors, you know, you're not just coding the presence of them, but you are coding the intensity of them and also the inconsistency of them. So you're coding these different concepts in a very, very comprehensive way. So not just whether they occur at all, but how much did they occur? You know, if we go with adaptation or, or, or empathy as one of these, you know, how empathetic were they? And how often were they unempathetic? So were they inconsistent with the model? And then how often were they consistent with the model? And then finally, 
Um, I'm kind of going to go, uh, and I guess you kind of bounce between table four here and figure one. He coded each of the interviewees basically on where they were in this interpersonal behavioral circle. And critically, if they were showing maladaptive or adaptive patterns of behavior. So, for example, when I said talk about, you know, the upper at the, the, the higher levels, the top of the of the interpersonal behavioral circle, if you can see my mouse, I'll kind of hover around it now. Right. This kind of in charge setting the agenda, how I would be as a presenter. Right. It's a good manifestation. However, there is a negative manifestation of the same behavior, which would be demanding, dogmatic, pedant uh, pedantic and rigid. So he's coding not just where they are on the circle. But he's also coding if they're doing kind of the good version or the bad version. And he does that for both interviewee and interrogator. And to be honest, I think to really show you this, and I guess this is the, the joys of being able to do these videos, it might be worth if I showed you, if I give you a, a live example of how this would look in reality. Okay, so I'm just quickly going to jump over to this video here. And this is a, this is a video interrogation of the Florida school shooter, Nicholas Cruz. Now, what we'll do is we'll, is we'll watch it. And we're only going to watch 45 seconds because it, it, it's a quick clip. The entire thing is available online. But this would be done at 15-minute intervals. So to, to put that in perspective, you're, for, there's 27 terrorist suspects, I believe, uh, for 288 hours. Instead of doing each, each interviewee as a line of data, you know, he was A, he was B. What Lawrence did is he unpacked each individual interrogation into 15-minute increments. So if you now think that's 288 hours, four 15-minute increments per hour, that's 288 hours times four. Mathematically, that's a big number. It's uh, it's over a 1,000. Uh, and if anyone would like to, to, to do that math quicker than me, you're more than welcome. But basically, so we now, we now have a 1,000 data points. And each data point is a, a moment in time within an interrogation that encapsulates not just our behaviours, right? So the motivational um, interviewing stuff, the interpersonal behavioural circle stuff. But as I'll show you when we jump back to the paper, a measure of counter-interrogation techniques and or yield. So every 15 minutes, you're coding all of this stuff. So if we were to look at this video here, quick 45 seconds. What's happened has happened, but now me and you have got to kind of communicate so I can hear you. And, and, and again, I'm going to ask you, you know, things about background and, you know, things about what happened. Okay, but you, you got you to relax and, you know, I'll bring you in some water. You sure you don't want uh, something to eat? Okay. 19 years old. Where were you born? What city? I don't know. You don't know? Do you know what state? Florida. Florida? Have you lived down here your whole life? Yes. Okay. But you don't know what city? You don't know what hospital? Okay. All right. So you were definitely born in Florida. Okay. Let me go get those waters and I'll be right back. Okay. Okay. So looking at that video now, if this were the, the real data collection process, and let's say hypothetically it was 15 minutes long, what the coder would then do is they'd say, right, okay, let's look at the interviewer's behavior, right? How many of our, you know, motivational interviewing tactics was he using? And if he was using any of them, to what degree was he using them? Was he using them a lot? Was he using them a little? Was he using them a mild amount? Now, obviously, that's not easy to see in 45 seconds, but, but if you allowed a 15-minute interaction, you'd find that easier. Then the next thing they would do 
is the exact same thing for for the for the suspect and then they would move on to the kind of orbit uh, uh, the 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 motivate uh, the sorry the interpersonal behavioral complex stuff circumplex stuff right so looking at their behaviors where were they right so where was nicholas cruz so if we look at figure 1 you know he wasn't in nicholas cruz being the the perpetrator here he wasn't in charge setting the agenda he wasn't social warm and friendly no maybe he was wary skeptical and reserved right so okay tick that box he's he's down there on the on the on the circle maybe even he's I wouldn't say he was irritable, distrustful, or, or resentful. So he's okay. He's on the adaptive uh, circle, but he, he's down low. Okay, what was the interviewer? Well, he wasn't really wary, sceptical, and reserved, was he? No, he was more in charge and setting the agenda. Right, tick that box. So in that 15-minute chunk, we've got a metric of where the interviewer was, where the interviewee was, how much they were doing kind of motivational interviewing, how much information was given, and uh, whether any kind of, you know, counter-interrogation or kind of um, resistance techniques were used. So it's a lot of very complex information in one 15-minute um, uh, uh, section there. But what you've done is you've quantified and conceptualised both the interaction of the two people in terms of its nature their behaviours, and also the output that comes from that. And that's how we then get to our, moving down here, kind of our analysis, right? Is this idea of what we're interested in is how do increases in certain behaviours that we hypothesise are good, motivational interviewing, interpersonal behavioural complex, how do increases in those relate to increases in information given? Now, just to give you, uh, if you're if you're interested in 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 understanding this metric of information given, uh, on page four two three halfway down, it basically says this idea of a plat, right? Persons, locations, actions, or things. So if the person says anything about another person involved, uh, a location, uh, an action, i.e., something they did, or, or or things, which I think is the is the most uh, the the more kind of mercurial of them there, then those are the things that are coded to give you a metric of yield. So. In the analysis section, and I don't think you need to get bogged down in the analysis section. Um, and, 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 and when we're looking here at figure two, you know, this is kind of a, a structural equational model. What this says in brief is that as motivational, increasing, uh, motivational interviewing behaviours increase, acceptance, empathy, adaptation, evocation, autonomy, which were defined in the introduction, as they increase, so too does yield. Furthermore, as interviewer adaptive behaviour and interviewee adaptive behaviour, left wheel behaviour, increases, so too does yield and also motivational interviewing. So those two things are tied. However, critically, as maladaptive behaviour or from the interviewee or the, de or the detainee increases, yield decreases. So what he's shown here is basically that in this large end data set of terrorist offenders, when people engage in certain rapport-based behaviours, the amount of information that they get goes up. And when people are reactive and adaptive in their interpersonal behaviour, the amount of information goes up. And to kind of cut over to the sister paper... If you look at how that works with counter-interrogation techniques, it kind of does the same thing. So good motivational interviewing behaviours 
decreases the amount of resistance that they try. And if you stay using kind of adaptive, interpersonally um, kind of uh, res, uh, res, res, reflective, I guess, uh, behaviours, then the amount of resistance tactics decrease. So what is this paper doing? And, and I think the to think about it from a philosophical standpoint, right? So what are the debates that, that led up to this paper? Well, one of the debates was, was this idea, and I'll, I'll talk about it in the lecture, but this idea that rapport was going soft and, and critically that rapport works, you know, with low level criminals or, or rapport works with, you know, witnesses. But oh, rapport doesn't work when it comes to those hardened terrorists. You know, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed isn't going to be not isn't going to tell you everything just because you're nice to him. Oh, maybe, but he definitely didn't say anything because you were horrible to him. Um, so, you know, what this does is it says, OK, well, that doesn't fly anymore because in a data set of actual interrogations, with actual terrorist suspects from the IRA, and they're hardened, to Al-Qaeda, to extreme right-wing, these hardened terrorists who were willing and or did actually, you know, kill and harm, they were more responsive when you used rapport-based behaviours. So that's the kind of the first message, right? And there's a, there's a follow-on paper from this that's... Um, it doesn't have any data. It's a more theoretical piece, and basically it's, it's kind of... Um, it's about kind of, you know, just basically rapport as a concept is, is, is evidenced as working even with these, you know, high value targets, if you will. And if you read any of the FBI follow on reports from this, they all come to that same conclusion. The second point of this paper is the way in which it conceptualizes what rapport is. And that is the idea that rapport is not a tactic nor a tool in a toolkit. Rapport is a enduring kind of psychological relationship that is based on the adoption of motivational interviewing perspective. So the idea that the, the detainee, you know, has control and autonomy and you can't just change the environment into it. And also the idea that you, you need to match your approach and your behaviour to that of your interviewee in order to have the best opportunity for rapport. Um, so when you take those two things together, it's not just about the fact that a paper found this. It's about that the first paper to look at real data with real terrorists found that a rapport-based strategy was the best way to get information from them, which at the time flies in the face of all of the narratives around the need to be more, you know, and not just enhanced interrogation techniques here, more more confrontational in your approach, you know, more aggressive in your approach, which, you know, you've seen. And if, if anyone's ever watched Hawaii Five O. And, a, and an interrogation in Hawaii Five-0 when Steve McLean or whatever it is throws a chair and ties him to it. Like, ridiculous. Like, that just that just doesn't work. Right? That's, that's, that, that's that tough tactics fail part of the title there. So this paper is the first kind of in the package. And, I mean, I think this was 2013. It could be, it could be 2014. Jeez, um, seven years ago now. But since then... These findings have, have been nothing but replicated. Nuances have emerged, but nothing but replicated. Um, and, and still to this day, and, and you saw it cited in the Shane O'Mara piece, this is still the only research team who has access to real interrogations with real terrorist offenders. And, and so that's why, to me, from a methodological standpoint, this paper is so important. Because it was the first one that said, that was able to 
go to the source and then to quantify something as complex as an interaction into a, a framework that allowed measurements of inputs and outputs, cause and effect, separated in time and space. Um, and so the method methodology here to me is one of the most important parts of the piece. So I really hope you enjoyed this paper. It it is it is uh, it's a fantastic read and it's a fantastic concept and it's a very good if you think about it from a philosophical or almost strategic standpoint. It's a really excellent way of showing how even with something like an interrogation, it can be studied properly and we don't have to settle with the tropes of either. Well, we can't analyze it because it occurs, you know, in the, in, in the fog of war. Or, well, the only way we can really exert control here and measure things is if we strip it right down to its composite parts and just throw some students at the problem. I, I think that there are truths in all of them, but what this shows is that kind of that practitioner academic meeting in the middle of real data, but in no way shirking on kind of the theory, the analysis, the conceptualization and the complexity. So I hope you really enjoyed it. I, I hope you enjoyed this paper and, and I hope that you enjoy this week as a whole because uh, uh, I think it will be a really interesting way to kind of show how how science can work uh, even in kind of uh, very, very complex areas. So enjoy. I look forward to recording one of these next week and uh, I hope you're having fun. Goodbye.